Brothers, take a ride with me to find out about the history and foundations of feminism on this edition of Frank Relationships. You're listening to Frank Relationships with Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Frank Love. Yes, as always, those are my babies. Mwah. Thanks for getting Daddy started. Author Dr. Bonnie J. Morris is with us today. And I'm curious, what is the women's liberation movement? <laughs> well, hello there. Uh, real pleasure and honor to be on the Frank Love Show. Welcome. Um, I'd love to reassure listeners uh, that... Uh, uh, the women's movement is not uh, founded on a man-hating agenda. That's a big stereotype. Uh, and it's also real important uh, that folks understand that the movement we think of as emerging in the 60s and 70s was not just uh, white women or upper-middle-class women. Uh, the women's movement really begins um, as soon as uh, women begin to demand the right to education and to change their uh, status in law where they were truly limited from going to school, uh, earning fair wages, owning their own property, uh, having some say-so in marriage, um, and having custody over their children. So it really starts uh, in the late um, 18th century, and it continues in early America when uh, feminists really begin as anti-slavery activists, putting women uh, at the center of uh, liberation. Um, and uh, their claim was that if motherhood was a sacred institution, what was going on with the sale and abuse of mothers and the separation of mothers from children in the institution of slavery? So we call that the first wave and that goes roughly from the 1840s until women win the vote. Mm -hmm. And winning the vote was a goal. Uh, the assumption, not always proven true, was that that would take care of a range of issues if women could have political representation. Mm -hmm. Then in the 20th century, we get a big backlash against uh, women's groups, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, government criticism that, women going on strike for better wages were just communists, or women uh, seeking greater public opportunity were immodest. And then in the 60s, we have a rebirth of feminism in what's sometimes called the second wave. And that was much more of a modern movement of women uh, critically examining everything from access to birth control um, the way that women were represented in school books, uh, support for women who had to work, um, pushing for daycare, pushing for uh, greater support for women in uh, sports and media representation, and a better understanding and discussion of relationships, like you're doing, mm -hmm. in our media. 
And what we think of as the third wave is also uh, kind of today's demand for what Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw calls intersectionality. You can't look at women's experience or women's liberation without looking for the movement for black liberation or gay liberation or um, class issues in terms of everybody getting a fair wage. Mm -hmm. So women's liberation is still an issue and globally a critical emergency in so many countries uh, where women and girls lack basic rights we do enjoy in the United States, uh, mainly access to education, um, and uh, really to make choices without um, being completely controlled by the men and their families. So that's a little thumbnail sketch, and I could say much more, but we can go on from there. Hmm. Well, uh, you wanna you won points from me instantly when you said it's not about male bashing. <laughs> oh, my students always come into class, um, you know, a little hesitant, and a lot of that is because of myths that they've seen uh, circulated from other talk radio we don't have to mention. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, 90s hostility to women's history and women's studies and professors being called feminazis. That mm. did not help me in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud to say I had almost the entire Georgetown football team mm. uh, taking my intro to women's studies class at Georgetown and... Um, you know, one guy took the class and then recommended it to two of his friends, and the next time I had three, then I had seven, then I had 11. Then I had to say to the coach, whoa, I can only fit so many of these guys in know. one class. <laughs> right. So they felt um, very comfortable when they understood my approach. And for my part, what I learned from them, uh, many guys uh, are sons of single moms. They have respect for the working woman. They understand those issues from their household. Uh, so there's no reason for um, these forums to be alienating to anybody. We're, we're all just looking at how have women negotiated survival in the past, how have our foremothers dealt with whatever conditions they were born into. Mm -hmm. I, I've got a, a tangent question. Okay. And I'll, I'm curious if you're going to know where I'm going with it before I even get there. But <laughs> okay. what, what are your thoughts um, on the well, electoral? Well, no, just surprise me. Oh, <laughs> okay, what are your thoughts on the electoral college? Oh, my God. Of course. Um, one of the things that's so embarrassing is we have never had equal representation of women in government. You know, that right. wonderful slogan from the American Revolution, taxation without representation is tyranny. You know, I pay taxes, and I've never had full representation. We had to have a women's bathroom built in the Senate in 1992. Mm -hmm. Up till then, uh, women had to leave the building uh, and often missed uh, vote roll call because there had never been more than four women senators. That all changed in 92. And uh, I can tell you that that architecture is true in other spaces as well. Uh, there's a lot of humor, again, at Georgetown that the science building did not have women's bathrooms. There was never any plan that women were going to do so well in the STEM field. Mm -hmm. So the Electoral College is, uh, you know, in a world of hurt in terms of how women are served. And a wonderful film I use in class called Misrepresentation 
looks at the struggle to get more women to run because uh, many who have the smarts to do so are intimidated by uh, the very brutal portrayal of women in public life. Everything mm -hmm. from your hair, you know, to your past relationship history is held up to scrutiny. And women are asked questions when they run for office that, that men don't often get asked, you know, how are you going to raise your kids and serve your country? Uh, and a lot of women are also um, sort of uh, pigeonholed that if they enter politics, they'll only be working on, quote, women's issues. Mm -hmm. And those are often the most controversial. People immediately go to abortion rights, and they don't think of any other thing a woman might be working on. And it could be everything from, you know, loans to farmers to air quality, uh, environmental racism, which is a big issue affecting families that live near sewage sites. These mm. are women's issues because they affect um, women's health, children's health, uh, school functioning. And um, all of that then leads to why don't we get more women's history in our schools? A lot of school boards and PTAs are just scared that introducing uh, women's history means all of these uh, very controversial aspects of the body. Uh, so it's wonderful that you raise the political issue. Yeah, that is the history. When did women first enter politics? Um, what about Shirley Chisholm running for president in 1972? Mm -hmm. A lot of my students have never heard of her. Mm -hmm. My mom took me to hear her when I was a sixth grader. And that had a huge impact on my outlook. Mm, sure. So the one thing I have to say is that I've never heard the women's liberation movement being an outgrowth of women standing up for women who were enslaved. Yes, yes. So um, do you have any... Can you tell us, I mean, typically we ask this at the end of the show, but are no, there sure. historical references, books that you can give us where we sure, can reference bet. that? Um, oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, uh, a really good one is uh, called The Feminist Papers, okay. edited by Alice Rossi. Uh, probably the uh, best um, uh, individuals to look up are Sarah and Angelina Grimke. Uh, these were uh, white women who uh, grew up in a family that eventually rejected slave-owning. Uh, they became um, radical advocates for white women to break the law by housing and assisting runaways. And they came way before uh, Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience writing mm -hmm. uh, and were um, advocates of women looking to a higher authority, they were uh, Christian feminists, uh, that you could break man's law to uphold God's law in assisting uh, enslaved women in escaping. Um, and they were uh, way out there because uh, at the time, fugitive slave laws uh, meant um, if you assisted runaways, you could go to jail and pay a fine. And women were under the control of husbands, which right. meant that the husband would have to pay the fine <laughs> if the woman was doing activism out of the home. 
uh, their writings, which are easily located, shocked their ministers, uh, who basically put them out of church and said, uh, we're shocked, shocked to find women talking about that which they shouldn't know. And what those clergy meant is these white women were talking about the sexual abuse of slave mothers. Mm. They were naming that stuff in the 1830s. Um, That motivated many white women to join the abolitionist movement, and that's when they discovered that as women, um, they didn't have the right under the law to uh, get uh, credit, sign a contract, rent a hall, all the things necessary if you wanted to run a big anti-slavery rally. Mm. They weren't even admitted to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840 because they were female. Only men were allowed in the hall. That's when abolitionist women got the idea of convening a women's rights convention so that they could move forward with speaking and publishing about uh, the issue of slavery, um, they were stuck with needing permission from men or um, uh, husbands in order to further their work on behalf of other women. Mm -hmm. And this is just an amazing story. Um, It changes later on. Later on, we get some white women being blistering racist, trying to get the vote. They tried to you know, win over uh, white Southern Democrats to let white women vote after black men gained the vote with the 15th Amendment. Mm -hmm. So the 19th century is a big pickle of when do women unite and when do they divide. Um, And uh, that is just a fascinating story. So in my classes, I make sure that my students memorize the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and then the 18th and 19th are pretty interesting, too. And then the 26th, which opens the vote to young people at 18 instead of 21. None of them know any of these. Um, I could give a pop quiz on the first day, mm-hmm. uh, and it's all unfamiliar. Um, and, of course, um, this is super important now because a lot of what we're discussing in terms of uh, immigrants' rights and so forth returns us to the 14th Amendment. If you are born in the U.S., you are a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was intended to instantly grant citizenship to the freedmen and women. Anyway, um, uh, other references beyond uh, the Grim Case sisters um, would be any of the literature about the um, uh, Seneca Women's Rights Convention of 1848, the uh, London Anti-Slavery Convention of 1840, um, and then, of course, the life of Sojourner Truth, Mm -hmm. uh, who, of course, um, combined all of these issues in her famous Ain't I a Woman Mm -hmm. speech. Yes, yes, yes. And her stance, which always combined her experiences as a former slave and as a woman, Uh, She was adamant about uh, giving women the right to education, and she was actually challenged on numerous occasions because she was such a dynamic speaker. That was seen as unfeminine. Women were not supposed to be great orators, you know. Uh, And 
one place where she gave a speech, she was actually asked to prove that she was, in fact, female because she had given such a great address. And um, the story goes that, uh, you know, somebody said, um, no, I don't think you are a woman. I want a party of, you know, people to examine you and prove that you're a woman. Oh, my God. And she uh, ripped open her blouse and said, take a good look. Uh, these breasts have suckled uh, many a white babe, even when my own went hungry. It's not to my shame, but yours, that I prove this to you now. Mm-hmm. And we just don't get speeches like that anymore. Right, so right. all of that really awakens, I think, all of us uh, to what many Americans would like to deny, which is that family values, once upon a time, for you know, 200 and, oh, my goodness, 44 years or so, included um, the uh, manipulation of women as mothers to serve the the Mm. system of slavery. Mm -hmm. But if you spoke up about that in protest as a woman, black or white, in the, you know, 1830s, 40s, 50s, you were hushed because simply to talk about the body made you bad Mm. and long story short the problem a lot of women had in the abolitionist movement was just talking about what women suffered in slavery was considered more shocking than slavery itself Mm. your reputation was shot if you dared to talk about um the abuse of slave mothers but a lot of women did speak up, mm-hmm. and then we get um, those who dared to write books, you know. Uh, and uh, it's all um, uh, a big part, of course, of the uh, Museum of African American History in D.C. now. But, ooh, there's a long waiting list to get inside there. <laughs> yes, so there is. Not everyone can get in, but they can get books, yeah. Welcome to Frank Relationships, a show for you, my brethren, who, like me, are too young to be considered old and too old to be considered young. It's also for those of you who love and support us. We're here to provide weekly wisdom, conversation, and the information that will help create loving and flexible parents and partners. I'm Frank Love, and you can find me, my blog, and my various social media incarnations at franklove.com. If you're listening on to the show on Blog Talk Radio, please follow us. And if via iTunes, please subscribe so that you can effortlessly get the show each week. Also, if you're enjoying the show, and of course you are, please give us a favorable iTunes rating and please share it with your family and friends on your favorite social media platform. We're always looking for new social media friends, so please help us help our communities by spreading the word about the show. Greetings to my super-duper co-host, Nancy Goldring. Greetings, Frank. The consummate generalist is, is with us. Still with you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you hear her giggle when you said, <laughs> <laughs> too old to be considered? <laughs> I might be too old to be considered. <laughs> I'm getting there for sure. <laughs> oh, I love um, it. I love it. Today's guest is the author of 15 books and a professor who teaches about an array of issues related to women's studies. She's a lecturer and consultant to Disney Animation, and she's here to educate us on an array of issues related to women, 
and feminism. So if you, like me, want to know what today's students believe about women's roles and the rights of women in the past, if you want to know how the institution of slavery shaped the attitudes about marriage and motherhood that we have today, and what ways LGBT activists have worked to make gay marriage a political equalizer. Then, stay tuned as your Frank Relationship team talks with Dr. Bonnie J. Morris, the author of the forthcoming The Feminist Revolution, The Struggle for Women's Libera Liberation. Welcome to the show. I'm a little old to be young, but uh, much younger to be old. And uh, <laughs> I've piled up a past in the classroom by now, and uh, amazing to think I've done 30 years of, of college teaching. So, woo! Wow. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. And you've taught at Georgetown, GW, mm -hmm. my alma mater. Yes. Uh, uh, very proud, Colonial, and Ahoya. Uh, it's a little, you know, it was complicated being halftime at both schools in D.C., especially when they played each other, uh -huh. you know, and um, now I'm in California and um, been teaching at Berkeley. Um, the um, uh, following year in uh, spring semester 2019, I'm going to be going global, teaching on semester at sea, hmm. bringing my curriculum around the world on a ship with uh, about 500 students and faculty on a very good uh, program that seeks to examine global women's issues, among other things. Uh, and, uh, yeah, my um, uh, interest in, uh, you know, seeing how students learn from the past, uh, there's um, never been a better time to look at the way uh, we fear or respond to minorities in America. Uh, and it's a balance for me in the classroom, uh, serving an increasingly diverse student population, many international students. What's their experience with women's history, or what are their questions, and in their household, um, what were they raised to believe and to see? And what are you learning? <laughs> and what am I learning? Yeah. I learn from my students all the time. Uh, they're just spectacular. Uh, and one of the things I do at the start of each year is um, uh, try to greet the new class in as many languages as I can say hello in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that usually takes about 10 minutes. But, ooh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, and on occasion, I've also had deaf students with an American Sign Language interpreter in the classroom. Mm -hmm. This year, I had many, many, many students uh, from China, uh, many from the Philippines, some from Guatemala, Venezuela. Um, and uh, in the years um, when I taught at Georgetown, uh, many students from the Middle East, many from Korea. So I do my best to begin with a, a global greeting. Uh, but a lot of the focus of what I do is, yeah, American history. And yes, um, the... Uh, sort of information I sent you emphasized, I do begin with a great deal of material on the institution of slavery, um, the lack of uh, marriage rights that slave couples had. Um, they were not legally considered married, which has a lot to do 
with the way that uh, adults were rarely referred to as Mr. and Mrs., but, you know, had pejorative names, you know, aunt, uncle, uncle Remus, whatever, uncle Ben. We still see that in our food products today. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that came from laws that simply failed to recognize the institution of marriage in the black community. Um, and then we also see that um, where there was a complete lack of control over children who could be sold away, um, nonetheless, families grew uh, tighter and stronger. Most of the famous cases of runaways uh, had to do with the family at risk of being separated and mm-hmm. ways to reunite. Um, all of that covers many weeks in my classes, and then we move to, um, in the later 19th century, uh, one of my favorite years, it's 1896. Uh, that is the fantastic year for any historian to study of any age, because we get really mixed messages. Um, we have Plessy versus Ferguson, which says separate but equal. Mm-hmm. Then we get the new Olympics, uh, which are supposed to showcase, you know, the best athletes from every land in a kind of brotherhood uh, ritual. But, of course, were um, segregated and no women allowed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's also a year when the U.S. becomes a world power acquiring Uh, the uh, islands of Hawaii, and then in the Spanish-American War, two years later, we grab uh, the Philippines, Cuba, Puerto Rico, etc. So we get really mixed messages. Um, On the one hand, there are more people of color than ever who become part of the U.S., but we have uh, new segregation policies keeping everyone apart. That's going to affect the sports history. Um, in terms of who gets to practice or play where. Mm -hmm. And it affects women in terms of uh, not being treated the way white women are. Um, By the way, the U.S. acquiring Hawaii uh, means the historic defeat of a queen, Queen Liliuokalani. So we did have uh, part of the U.S. that was a monarchy with a queen on the throne. It's another one of my midterm questions. Mm. So women's history is all mixed up in political history and immigration history and in the history of segregation. Speaking of sports, would you explain Title IX? You bet. Um, That's another one of my favorite uh, class topics. Uh, It's real important because we don't have an equal rights amendment guaranteeing uh, women the same rights as men. We really don't. People think we do, but that failed. We do have an important law, Title IX, which is part of the Education Act of 1972. A lot of people uh, identify that with girls' sports now, but it was never meant to be an athletic law. Uh, Title IX was passed amazingly by President That is a surprise. I didn't know that it wasn't meant to be, but I'm listening. It was passed because there were so many biases against Uh, women and girls getting into schools. Um, Mm -hmm. As late as 1972, women were not admitted to Princeton. Mm -hmm. If they were admitted to Harvard and Yale, it was on a quota system. Uh, 
two women for every three men. Many women were turned away from law school, medical school, grad school. Uh, they were not permitted to enter certain majors like architecture, engineering. A lot of the sciences were closed to them. They were not given uh, scholarship dollars. Um, there was just all kinds of discrimination. So Title IX was passed to basically say any school that gets federal money may not discriminate on the basis of sex. And all of a sudden, that raised the issue of what about the bias in uh, sports programs? Most schools gave 99% of their athletic budget to men's sports. And it opened the door for athletic scholarships for women. Um, but mostly, it opened the door for uh, women and girls to compete um, for uh, college education at every school. Now, you'll notice buried in the law is this little, you know, clarification. If you don't accept federal money, you are free to discriminate. Mm -hmm. That is still true. There are some religious colleges that don't accept any money from the government so that they can pursue their own policies, including uh, racial discrimination. That's very famous at Bob Jones University. Uh, so Even to this most day? schools, though, do take some kind of federal dollar. That could be a Pell Grant, school lunches, or in the age of Americans with Disabilities Act, building a ramp. So most schools have to comply. And it opened the door for women to gain access uh, to become doctors and lawyers and professors. Um, the way that um, schools used to discriminate in admissions uh, would be something like a woman is applying to go to law school or med school, and an admissions counselor can say, why should we admit you? You're just going to get married and have a baby and drop out. Shouldn't this space go to a man? Uh, everyone ought to know it's illegal now for a college to ask you that question in an interview. Um, you, you know, are evaluated on your ability. So it's made a huge change. It increased... Um, the enrollment of women and girls in Americans' higher education institutions to the point where now women are 55%, not just 50, 55% of the undergraduate enrollment. Um, overall in the U.S., at some schools, it's 60%. So you have more women than men on college campuses, and that's raised a problem I'm sure you've discussed on your program, uh, there <laughs> are more issue. women with advanced degrees than men in some communities, and it's hard for women to find partners mm -hmm. in some instances when we still think that, uh, you know, there ought to be equal backgrounds or maybe the man ought to be earning more. People wrestle with those feelings and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And we're just now beginning to learn the stories of the ways in which gifted women moved America ahead, hidden figures, great example is a movie. What are the names of women whose abilities in the maths and sciences not only made accomplishment possible, but who struggled to gain their educational rights in their time and place? Uh, there's going to be much more in the future as we look at... Um, the stories of other women 
who had to overcome barriers um, to enter like a PhD program or or what have you. Even I, um, in you know my grad school years, uh, once I had a PhD, I looked young or whatever, and I was always asked to prove that I really belonged in you know a faculty lounge, or I had to show three kinds of ID to take a book out of a library as a professor mm-hmm. because some schools were not used to a woman being the professor. And, uh, uh, boy, you know, I had to learn how to respond to those situations. Then I wrote a one-woman play making fun of all of that called Revenge of the Women's Studies Professor, and <laughs> I wanted to show feminists had a sense of humor. Oh, sweet. <laughs> what did you find, what was the optimal solution or what was the optimal response well when a couple of moments you know probably the best example was in the harvard faculty lounge i had the opportunity to teach at harvard divinity school mm-hmm. uh, when i was still like in my 20s so uh there was one gentleman who was just beside himself with discomfort that there was this young woman in the faculty lounge. This wasn't Barack Obama taking no. a, uh, he was a at the divinity school. school. No, no. <laughs> it was a, a different department um, that I won't name that had a lot of difficulty accepting higher numbers of women on the faculty. But, you know, his response when I flashed my ID was, oh, you know, you're so young and pretty, I, you don't look like a professor. My response was, what does that mean that a woman professor is like, you know, an old hag, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, it, you, it, there's going to be a lot more people who, who look like me. Well, it could but, mean that the men were just old and <laughs> haggard looking and they just figured. Well, the perception was that if a woman was smart, she wasn't pretty also. Exactly. And that came from a really important reality. I'm so happy that you brought that up. That belief comes from the fact that until really like the 1930s and 40s, you had to be unmarried to be a school teacher right. or a nurse right. in America. You had to be single because, first of all, you were supposed to be devoted to your calling, almost like being a nun. Mm-hmm. But mostly, um, school boards could pay an unmarried woman less than a married man, and the assumption was you you didn't need as much to uh, eat or live on. Uh, moreover, once you were married, your husband ought to be supporting you, and it was uh, shameful for you to keep working or it made him look bad. And finally, school boards didn't want a pregnant lady in front of a room full of young people because it might make them think inquisitive minds want to know for all these reasons uh the image was a school marm was an unmarried woman and most women were supposed to get married so how pathetic were you that you had to teach school it must mean you were too ugly to attract a husband or you wouldn't be teaching school that uh still is an image that shows up in cartoons and it's just not you know, realistic. Um, but that's where that comes from, that hmm. smart is ugly. Smart equaled unmarried. Um, and in the uh, Catholic world, of course, becoming a nun, you also 
make a pledge to be celibate. Technically, you are married. You become a bride of Christ. So that's another whole story. But the idea that you are, um, you give up family life to do something that's a higher calling, whether it's spiritual or teaching, women have been pushed into making those choices. What were you teaching at the Divinity School? Ah, I was teaching a class on Jewish women's history, okay. uh, and that was a wonderful experience. Um, and I had um, the opportunity to be one of the visiting research associates at Harvard Divinity School in 1990 to 91. Um, I taught the first ever graduate class on ultra-Orthodox women at Harvard, and I was basically looking at how feminism had touched their lives. In other words, I was looking at how women in any, uh, you know, fundamentalist religious group, whether it's um, fundamentalist Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, how uh, traditional women's roles are, are shifting in those communities, too. And in my case, I was looking at uh, women in the uh, very orthodox communities in Brooklyn and um, how they remained um, uh, active uh, even as members of a very religious community. My uh, goal was to showcase these women are not brainwashed or whatever people might think. They're very active members of their community, and that, too, is a kind of women's activism. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it was great. I can't say enough about uh, that program, which is still going strong, and listeners who are interested, they take, uh, you know, uh, five women working on religious history as scholars every year. Go Mm -hmm. ahead and apply. Cool. Have yeah. You, have you ever had a heart to heart with uh, with any uh, models or or cheerleaders about women and feminism and women's studies and just to get their Do you think mm-hmm. they're bringing this the movement down? <laughs> well, that's a, whoa, what a complicated question. Mm. Uh, well, um, let's see. First of all, it's fun to uh, share that my uh, mom was an earring model at a fancy department store in the 1950s, and uh, uh, my dad was a model, too. He was a uh, little Hollywood movie extra in the Depression. Uh, so both my parents are, you know, beautiful people who in different ways parlayed their looks into employment at times. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole history there of ways in which people earn, earn a living being gracious and looking beautiful. Um, In terms of cheerleading, that is a great uh, issue because what we know, of course, is it requires uh, great uh, gymnastic and athletic stamina. There's also a very long history of men being cheerleaders before women Mm -hmm. were admitted to college, so all those things are are linked. Um, In Title IX law, there's a lot of debate about whether uh, cheerleading should count as a varsity sport if you're counting how many women are in, you know, Division One activity at any given school. Um, it was really the only thing open to women for a long time. Uh, now there's a lot of tension about do women cheer for women's events, and I certainly hope they do because uh, it's so important to uphold um, – getting people to go to women's games. Uh, Have I ever had a a heart-to-heart? I actually had a wonderful opportunity 
to meet and speak with um, Alek Wek, a very famous model from Sudan, and we're in a, a documentary film together uh, called If Women Ruled the World. Filmed in Washington, D.C. in 1996, it brought together women of all backgrounds to have dinner in the Capitol Rotunda, and uh, she was one of the invited guests. Um, so that was, that was a great opportunity for me. I guess the other thing I'd point out um, along these lines is um, the, the main issue that many of my female students struggle with is when we um, have uh, a, a standard of womanhood that includes a body type most of us will never attain, the pressure on young women in particular to look a certain way or to maintain uh, a low weight or to uh, only uh, wear certain kinds of clothes, that's where we get into trouble with self-esteem and um, health and what we value in womanhood. Mm. So it's a very mixed uh, topic, but I have always had cheerleaders in my uh, sports class. Uh, in fact, there was one hilarious day where uh, one of my students from the cheer team challenged women from the volleyball team and said, let's face it, we work out more hours than you do, and there's a big fight in the room, and I had to, like, throw up a yellow card. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, my best story along these lines, though, is a D.C. story where um, President Clinton brought uh, his daughter Chelsea, then about 14, to see a game at GW, and at that time it was uh, set up so that the there was a men's game and a women's game played back-to-back -back the same day, and you bought a ticket and you saw both. So there was the president in the stands with his daughter, and he watched the, the men play. And then um, the men finished their game. The women come out onto the court, and the president got up to leave. Mm. And I thought, that is not going to happen while I am a professor at this university. So I walked up to him and said, you know, Mr. President, it would mean a lot to our team if you would watch the women play, and it would certainly set a good example for your daughter that we, you know, we value uh, the women's team as well as the men's. And he went and sat back down. So I gave a direct order to a president of the United States, and then he became the first U.S. president to phone and congratulate the uh, winning women's NCAA champion that, uh, that year, the women's team that year. Uh, that's just an example of, you know, we have Title IX law, but we don't always show up for women's events. Um, and, and, and on that note, I, yeah. what do you say to me? <laughs> because I don't, there is nothing, well, I don't even go to... Um, Men's games. I don't go to men's games, <laughs> but I mean, I may watch one on television, but I would never watch women mm. play basketball. Mm. What do you say it's, to that? Oh, it's so good. Now... I had to, I have to be fair and say that I was a pitiful athlete um, and not a big sports fan. Growing up, I really wanted to sit on the couch and read books. I was a bookworm and not a sportswoman. My dad and brother played volleyball. In fact, my dad built the volleyball courts at the Lincoln Memorial that are still used and are free for everyone, and we're real proud that he did that. I became a, a, a fan of women's sports as an outgrowth of my concern about female power and visibility. Um, and I had a real w uh, wake-up call 
when I went to a women's game kind of early in my teaching career because I had students on the team and they invited me, come see us play, we'd love to have you there. So I went to support my students, and as I'm sitting there on the bench, another one of my students who was the captain of the men's team walked in, saw me watching the women's team, and said, nothing better to do on a Friday night? Wow. That was a double slam, both at the women's ability and my presumed lack of a social life. And I thought, ooh, okay, I need to have my rear end on the bench for every women's game to show, you know, my students somebody is supporting you, even if I'm the only one there. And then after that, there was a big shift uh, where American women started to bring home more of the gold at the Olympics, and that drew very positive attention to how far we'd come, mostly because everyone likes a winner in the U.S. But um, now we have uh, women going to the Olympics who have the right to enter events that were closed to them until recently, like ski jump and ice hockey. Um, I have a former student, Alana Myers, uh, one of the first women of color in bobsled, who is a two-time medalist and is going right back to the Winter Games to do bobsled again. She began as a champion softball player on GW's team and was in my uh, sports history class. Um, I think for a lot of people it begins with someone you care about, whether it's a student or a child or a relation is an athlete and you go to support them and then you get drawn into the the game and you know scandals of the olympics or uh the all-american girls baseball league is a great story and uh one of the women i got to meet which was a great experience for me mamie peanut johnson who just passed she as a black woman could not play in the all-white world war ii league Uh, the All-American Girls Baseball League. She played in Negro League ball as one of a handful of women who were brought in kind of as novelties but were excellent, excellent athletes. Um, uh, Tony Stone was another. But Peanut Johnson uh, came and uh, was on a panel at the Avalon uh, Movie Theater in D.C., Uh, on an occasion when there was a, a kind of award given to um, Penny Marshall for making the movie about um, the All-American Girls Baseball League. Mm-hmm. It was very important on that occasion to look at women who were kept out of that league because it was white only. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to learn from women athletes, too. What do you say to people, uh, women, men, who still maintain that the women's liberation movement was destructive mm-hmm. for the family. Mm-hmm. That's a very challenging but, you know, important question. Um, a lot of what makes people uncomfortable is that uh, the women's movement opened up dialogue about what had been going on all along in terms of our social problems of domestic violence, um, abuse, those had been silenced topics. They had not been given a lot of support in terms of, you know, the 
1972 is when we got the first battered women's shelter. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have more shelters for abused animals than for abused women and children in the United States. Does that mean the situation has improved? <laughs> well, this is the question. Is Has it gotten better? Are we simply talking about it more? Are we more aware? And that seems like things have gotten worse because we have more uh, discussion. Uh, it's uncomfortable for many people to acknowledge a, a subject like incest in the family um, in the way that many people were once shamed for simply having, let's say, a child with a disability. There was something wrong with you if you had a child with a special need. Now we have uh, support and open discussion and greater dignity. In the same way, we have discussion and support uh, for women who have uh, survived an abusive marriage. The problem, of course, is that permitting women to leave an abusive marriage uh, means um, permitting divorce, which many people then equate with breaking a, a family, and that's a negative. Um, well, it sounds like yeah. highlighting women's issues has essentially shined light on America's pathologies. Ah, that's a so, beautiful sentence. Well, I'm, as I'm listening to you, even when I think back to your original statement mm-hmm. that it was it was women fighting for, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, white women fighting for the rights of black women as mothers and the in the mm-hmm. abuses that they endured. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, okay, but uh, no one would argue that white women enjoyed the oh, fruits uh-huh. of slavery also. So That's why right. would they fight? So then I'm, excuse me, so I'm thinking, well, one of the reasons I could see white women deciding to unite against the sexual abuses of black women is because that uh, the reality was that black women as slaves or property meant that their husbands had carte blanche sexual... Uh, opportunities mm-hmm. run amok yeah. with women that they would then say, so mm-hmm. this is a new day. You can't say, well, honey, uh, I loved her. I love yeah. you, but it was something different with her. A man could say, well, this is my property That's and I'm right. sleeping with this woman to create new slaves that I don't have to pay for that keeps That's you right. in the, in the style that you're accustomed. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems to me that it's, that it, it wasn't necessarily, especially as you said, when there were black women who were wet nurses to white children and couldn't mm-hmm. feed their own children. Mm-hmm that this was Mm -hmm. more about getting their men under control sexually. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis. And, of course, um, there's a whole lot of literature on that. The grad school that I went to, uh, Binghamton University, uh, we had a lot of focus on black and white women uh, in the uh, plantation south. Um, And um, everything that that you just said is such a uh, a dense... uh, set of concerns for all Americans to be acquainted with. Uh, And that's a big part of what I talk about in the classroom. Uh, White women married to slave-owning men were miserably well aware that their husbands were cheating on them. 
there was often no love between the slave woman and the white woman who, you know, sometimes went out of her way to have, you know, young slave women punished because they felt that they were attractive to their husbands. That is a whole sad, sick story. Uh, there were also women who um, understood that in American law, white women, too, were considered the property of their husbands. They could be beaten, abused. They did not have any right under the law to go to court. Um, white women also did not have the right to uh, testify in, in court or bring a lawsuit uh, in the 19th century. So some of the uh, fighting for a change in these rights and roles was very much about giving women more say-so to get out of an abusive marriage and also, yeah, to challenge uh, men's mm, sexual freedom. This is why many men did not want women to vote. They were certainly convinced women voting would end their fun. I don't know that we could call it sexual freedom. We could call it sexual abuse. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) so this is all stuff that's really hard to introduce, let's say, in a middle school classroom. Uh, We tend to make students wait until college age to study women's history because so much of it is about the abuse of the body. Yes. Really hard to make that age appropriate for, like, fifth graders, but, of course, we have fifth graders capable of getting pregnant now. So we're stuck in the United States with these facts. We have one of the longest adolescents in the world. We have uh, young girls having their first period at nine, but we're now encouraging everyone to stay in school till you have a master's degree. So let's say 29, 20-year-long adolescents. We are reluctant to introduce the realities of women's history at too early an age, but if we delay that information, we're not serving teenagers who are already sexually active. And already enduring a lot of the abuses. I'm sorry, what? They're already enduring a lot of the abuses that we don't want to talk about at the age Mm -hmm. that they're dealing with them. Right. So how do we get that into schools? We've got really strict sex abstinence-only curricula or whatever it is. And then to, um, so just to bring up this material at all is a struggle. Incorporating uh, the racial history is, is an additional, you know, big pressure in, in transforming the curriculum. Um, and then you have, on top of everything else, looking at the ways in which let's say, um, uh, schools in the past expelled girls who got pregnant, sent them to maternity homes, hushed up uh, that reality. There's a very good book I use called Girls Who Went Away that looks at young women who surrender their infants um, and the ways that there just was no open discussion about these issues in the past. So let me ask you this before you Mm -hmm. go. What do you say in your college classes Mm -hmm. to the African-American woman Mm -hmm. who has essentially been able to see or is able to see now that the women's liberation movement did not destroy the white family or the Jewish family Mm -hmm. 
in the way that one might suggest that it did the black family because the black woman wasn't seeking liberation from her man. She wasn't being oppressed by her man. Well, if people bring in those issues, um, one of the things I can direct them to, oh, my goodness, um, is uh, Michelle Wallace and her very famous book, uh, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. Um, She was uh, really... Um, attacked for addressing these issues uh, in terms of the desire not to shed any kind of negative light on possible abuses going on within the black family at a time when um, it was essential to present a united front in the civil rights movement. Well, I'm so, not looking at it really that way. I'm just yeah. looking at how how did you manage... How did the white or Jewish woman manage uh-huh. to compartmentalize mm-hmm. her her search or fight for liberation uh-huh. against her yeah. determination to stay, to keep the family unit together? Yes, I understand what you're saying. Okay, wow. Uh, part of the question is, uh, in what way did white women experience privilege that they were not invited to frame as privilege. Uh, as many joined the liberation movements of the 1960s and 70s, um, it appeared to many people that white women had nothing to be liberated from, they were comfortable, had um, a larger range of opportunities Within the white community, women speaking to each other about everything from sexual harassment in their place of work or uh, poor wages when they were working class women, those discussions brought women together, and gradually um, it became an imperative to incorporate black feminism, which would bring different issues, too. And with, but it would also increase your numbers towards your own cause. Of course. But and without necessarily sharing how to keep your family intact while mm-hmm. you fight for your rights in society. Yeah, that how part- do you uh, look at the way men who are ground down um, were made to feel that at least in their own home they were in charge? What happened when men were unable to find work Women became the breadwinners, and that changed uh, the balance of power in the family. Uh, How were families able to stay together when um, they were uh, pushed to... uh, Separate. Yeah, and then you have um, uh, the way in which we just haven't respected in American culture the uh, extended family in the way that most cultures worldwide have, you know, elders uh, who are so important or mixed generation in one household. Um, so Dr. Much Vaughan, of the pressure, you know, after World War II was get your own little house and just have mom and dad and two kids in it. Right. Uh, don't have aunts and uncles or grandparents also there. Um, that uh, impact of the way an extended family uh, supports the needs of the nuclear family. 
One last question. Definitely been challenged, you know, and in particular in white America. Help me with something. Mm-hmm. How did 53% of white women vote for Donald Trump? I don't have an answer. That is just so disturbing to me. There's, there's a lot of political critics who would say uh, the short answer is by convincing them that they had, you know, more to fear from immigrants and that they were somehow uh, had more in common through skin color with uh, images of power that Trump was presenting. I don't know. It's the most horrifying thing. It's also um, a result in part of the way we have made it very difficult for black voters with gerrymandering and ID requirements and all the things that were supposed to be changed by the Voting Rights Act. So I'm very concerned about how that has, particularly in the South, been used to suppress voter turnout. It's delightful to see that that was not the case in the Alabama vote recently. Um, But I I can't speak for... Oof, was she ultimately vo- voting for the family? <laughs> well, we've gotten we've gotten Nancy. They're throwing me out. They're throwing me out. You're listening to Frank Relationships, and we're talking with the author of The Feminist Revolution, The Struggle for Women's Liberation, Dr. Bonnie J. <laughs> Morris. Dr. Bond, please yeah. tell us what you're up to, other than, of course, the, the newly released or newly to be released book. Uh, what what are you up to, and how can we find you? How can you find me? Uh, well, first of all, you have asked some great tough questions, uh, and I'm humbled uh, by not having solutions to many of our more pressing issues. But uh, believe me, I am out there uh, fighting. I'm uh, very comfortable being an activist. Uh, I don't know any other way. I uh, was raised going on peace marches from age five on. Um, I am uh, teaching uh, women's sports history at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California this winter. I'm going to be um, uh, doing a semester at sea in spring 2019. I'm going to be speaking at Politics and Prose March 26th and signing copies of the Feminist Revolution at the Smithsonian on Palm Sunday, the day before, March 25th. You can find me online at www.bonniejmorris.com. Uh, I'm going to be um, uh, this summer uh, grading AP U.S. history exams, uh, which I've done for 17 years, looking at what young people know about U.S. history and how they handle questions on slavery and feminism. I've been proud to be involved uh, with that for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And um, on top of all of that, uh, I am um, working on a time travel women's history mm. novel and uh, trying to put together a textbook on women's sports history called This Was Our Game that's going to look at some of the stories I've shared with you today. Very nice. Along today's journey, we've discussed Title IX, feminism and slavery, and the discomfort related to talking about issues that could be considered shameful. Thank you to my co-host, Nancy, 
Thanks to Jeff Newman, my engineer, and thank you to my guest, Dr. Bonnie J. Morris. Thank you. You're a wonderful, wonderful host, and I've had uh, nothing but uh, pleasure being on your show today. Excellent. My dog. <laughs> I hope you've had as much fun as I've had hanging out with today's ensemble. As always, it's my wish for you to walk away from this conversation with a heaping helping of useful information that'll help you create a relationship that's as loving and accepting as possible. Let us know what you thought of today's show at Facebook forward slash relationship F love on Twitter at Mr. That's Mr. Frank Love or at franklove.com. If you're listening via Blog Talk Radio, make sure you like us there. And if via iTunes, make sure you subscribe so that you can receive each week's show. This is Frank Love, and that is Jeff Newman. <laughs> <laughs>